Hey. Hey. I'm Kayla. Hi. I'm Helene. Welcome, Welcome to, High, to Crime. High Crime. What are you smoking today? Um, I am being really boring and doing the same oil as last week. <laughs> well, this week I ate a dark chocolate chip cookie that I had made Ooh. with um, someone had given me some bud and I was like, I don't really know what to do with this. So I made can of butter and then I made cookies oh. and I wasn't really sure because I'd never done it before how much like THC was in all the cookies. But um, I ate one like an hour ago and uh, I'm on the struggle bus. So <laughs> follow me in advance because it really did its job. Nice. Well, that means it was successful, and now you're an official um, um, baker. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to say I was officially high. Yeah. I nominate you. You get the award. <laughs> okay. The high baker All right. award. <laughs> so this episode, we are paying tribute to Lorraine Warren because she died on April 19th. Which is now 10 days ago because life is crazy. But still, we wanted to kind of talk about some of her cases with her husband, Ed, who he died in 2006. Uh, Lorraine was 92 when she died. So, I mean, pretty full life. Yeah, that's pretty long. And uh, she and Ed founded the New England Society for Psychic Research. Um in 1952 and so then some of their cases have gone on to inspire novels and other things but the most known uh movies including the amityville horror the conjuring the conjuring 2 the annabelle trilogy the haunting in connecticut basically anything in the conjuring universe uh is based on cases the warrens worked on so it's a lot of a lot of pull to find some good options in this yeah they are really interesting, and I have a lot of thoughts on them. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you start sharing? Okay. So um, I am choosing to talk about The Haunting in Connecticut. Ah! Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, I did some thorough research and found this article from March 26, 2009 um, on LiveScience.com by a contributor named Benjamin Bradford. So this is where I'm getting my info from. Nice. Okay. It's called The Real Story Behind the Haunting in Connecticut. So it talks about how the, the horror film that came out in 2009 um, tells the story of the Snedeker family who rented a, is that how you say it? I don't know. It just sounded funny. Yeah. It's a funny name for a very funny family. (laughs) I, and like when I first saw it, I wanted to pronounce, I keep in my head, I, I like know it's probably Snedeker, but I like, pronounce it like Sneedeker to like <laughs> laugh even more cartoonish yeah or like it sounds like sneaker anyways they rented an old house in 1986 
in the town of Southington, Connecticut. Uh, okay. So Alan and Carmen Snedeker moved in with their daughter and three young sons. While exploring their new home, Carmen found strange items in the basement, tools used by morticians. Oh. So that's pretty freaky yeah. to like rent a new house and you go downstairs and you're like, Okay, this is terrifying. Also, you would think that the realtor would clear those out before renting the house, but... Yeah, like, how lazy. Also, like, did they not check out the basement beforehand? These are questions... Yeah, so not only did she not move the tools, but she didn't do a good job giving them a tour. No, because I would... If I am renting a house... I actually love apartments because there's no basement. But if I was renting a house, I 100% need to see the basement because basements are where bad things are stored and happen. So from hostages to murder weapons. Look at Fred and what's her name, West. The basement was like their torture chamber. Oh, Anne-Marie, I think her name was. Yeah. Insane people use the basement for their you know things nefarious deeds yes <laughs> yes that was the word all right big words <laughs> the, <laughs> the family soon discovered to their horror that the home had once been a funeral parlor oh god and the eldest son yeah that's pretty yeah i would want to know once had been a funeral parlor and the eldest son began seeing ghosts and having terrifying visions. Of course he did. The experiences then... Yeah. So, makes sense <laughs> so far. The experiences spread to other family members, and it only got worse. How this is go? where it gets really... <laughs> it gets really freaky okay. and terrible. Both parents said they were raped and sodomized by demons. What? So, like a... Like a, what yeah. is that, a succubus? Yeah. I have some issues with the, with people using the phrase sodomize, but, you know, uh, that aside, uh, <laughs> you know, homophobic uh, insinuations okay. aside, uh, both parents were raped and sodomized by demons, so they say. One day, as... Um, the mother, Carmen, mopped the kitchen floor. The water suddenly turned blood red and smelled of decaying flesh. Ew. And this was only like one of the things that they reported. <laughs> water turning to blood red and decaying flesh. Not quite water into wine, but you know. Oh my God, no, opposite. Equally surprising. Yeah, that's fair. One is a lot less appealing. Yeah. So, finally, the family was fed up and afraid, and they contacted self-styled demonologists and ghost hunters Ed and Lorraine Warren, our our subjects, who arrived and did proclaim the Snedeker house to be infested with demons. Multiple demons. Many demons. The scariest part? It's all true. Supposedly. (laughs) Tell me more. The the Snedekers have told their story many times, including on national talk shows and in a Discovery Channel TV show. 
The film's poster states in capital letters at the top that the movie is quote-unquote based on true events, yet others are not so sure. Investigator Joe Nickel reports in a May-June issue of Skeptical Inquirer. I'm obsessed with that <laughs> title. Oh my god. Off to the start. Oh yeah, this is from 2009, but I think if Skeptical Inquirer still exists, we should absolutely subscribe. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, in the Skeptical Inquirer magazine that the Snedeker's landlady found the whole story ridiculous. Which, you know, yes, it is ridiculous, but also you're the freaking landlady who left mortician devices in the basement of a house you're renting. So also, who has more of a motivation to say that a haunting didn't happen, but the person who's trying to rent out that space for money? Exactly. It should be in like New Orleans. In New Orleans, there's like signs that says like for rent and haunted. <laughs> Literally. For people like us. Yeah. Um, And by like us, I mean like it's great to see that, but I don't want to live there. Yeah. Nick Cage will just buy them all up. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Uh, She noted, so the landlady noted that nobody before or since had experienced anything unusual in the house and that the Snedeker family stayed in the house for more than two years before deciding to leave yeah that's a long time yeah honestly like if you're getting like tortured I feel like you're gonna make more of an effort I mean I know you can't just pick up and move but you can at least like crash places when you can if I was being sodomized by a demon on the regular I would absolutely try to find a um, alternate place to sleep yeah absolutely I'm not staying there right I would pay my rent until the lease went out and, like, be like, listen, um, my entire family is being assaulted by demons in our sleep, and I need to stay with you. And they would be like, Helene, you're insane, and call the police and take me to the asylum. But you know what? You know what isn't in the asylum? What? Sodomizing demons. Exactly. Although apparently, according to every horror movie, every... Every insane asylum contains dead child ghosts. That's true. What's worse? Yeah. <laughs> so, apparently, being assaulted and raped by Satan's minions for months at a time wasn't a good enough reason to break the lease. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little judgy. <laughs> There's some judgment there. The Snedeker story first came to light in horror novelist Ray Garden's 1992 book, In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting. In an interview in Horror Bound magazine, I love how there's like a magazine for everything. Oh, yeah. Magazine for everything in the 90s is the website for everything today. Garten discussed how the true story behind the haunting in Connecticut came about. Garten was hired by Ed and Lorraine Warren to work with the Snedekers and write the true story of their house from hell. He interviewed all the family members about their experiences and soon realized that there was a problem. The author said, I found that the accounts of the individual Snedekers didn't quite mesh. They couldn't keep their stories straight. I went to Ed Warren with this problem. Oh, 
They're crazy, he said. You've got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Just make it up and make it scary. Oh, my God. So so here's our uh, self-identifying demonologist being like, they're insane. Just make it up and make it scary so it sells books. Well, I mean, there to be the Warrens that kind of was the way they worked because they they would, you know, say they had services and I maybe they do. I don't know. The Conjuring's a great movie. But they would say like we can help you if there's like a haunting or, you know, to help debunk it, whatever, if it's at your house, they wouldn't charge to help people. And then that's because after they did it, they'd use their story to get to write books, to get movie deals, to get on TV talk shows and the lecture circuit. So that that was kind of their MO. Which is genius. Yeah, then- it really is. Because then everyone's like, you, you know, they're so great because they're helping these people out of the kindness of their hearts. <laughs> Absolutely. Um. So Garton, the author who had accepted the job, expecting to have a real true story to base the book on, did as he was told. I used what I could, made up the rest, and tried to make it as scary as I could. So first of all, the number one thing I love about this story so far is that, or the whole thing, is that (laughs) the author of this book was like, yes, finally, a a true story I can write about to finally expose the spirit world. (laughs) Like I love people, but like that he didn't like, I don't know that he, he's kind of playing the card. Like I thought I was going to have a real story. And I'm like, yeah, if you want a clean cut nonfiction, do like a biopic or something. Don't 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 do a haunting. Yeah. Uh, though the Snedekers still stand by their story, it seems there is little or no proof that anything supernatural occurred at the house. Sometimes Whether the ghosts or not the, interact with the cameras. Oh, the ghosts interact with the cameras. Yeah, they like block the frequency, so you can't get a good picture. Hmm. Yeah. Honestly, if I was—I mean, I was kind of joking, but you—you you questioned it, and then it just was weird. Wait, what? <laughs> I was just being like, but Helene, it's because they didn't get any footage because the ghosts made them not be able to. Because that's like always the excuse whenever someone's like, "Why isn't there proof?" And it's like, we tried, but the cameras never worked in the house. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was like, I was like, do the ghosts really do that? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I I do love when people post like it's like a photo with like a smudge in it and they're like, that's the ghost. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm not sure, but okay. I mean, I have a picture like you know how in the ring if you watch the movie then your face was like squiggly? Uh-huh. I have a picture like that. Like I took a picture. It was a group photo and my one friend must have moved like slightly just as the person took the picture because mm-hmm. there, there are two and like the one we're just all smiling. And in the second one, everyone is smiling and looks normal. And then her face is just like a ring like blur, but it literally was just a, 
it was just uh you know a camera glitch it was just her moving while the picture was snapped yeah people don't realize that um cameras are really quite imperfect uh renderings of like real life even if you have like the highest quality photo it's never going to be exactly real well no because there's you just can't there there has to be so many things set a certain way to actually get like a perfect picture lighting affects things and if it's windy and if it's I mean think about any time you try to take a picture of like a beautiful full moon it looks terrible on camera yes I tried taking a picture of a beautiful sunset and it looked so shitty yeah, it never looks as good as it does in person, which I'm sure is some kind of message about technology. Absolutely. I would have had <laughs> to use like a my um, um, DSLR that I don't use because I'm too lazy. Um, so um, the Snedekers stood by their story, despite having no proof. Um, whether or not the Snedekers actually believed their story, they stood to make money from the book deal. They were aware that the Lutz family of Amityville, New York, profited handsomely from selling the rights to their true story of a haunted house. The Amityville horror has long since been revealed as fiction by investigator Rick Osuna and others. Interestingly, the Warrens were also involved in the Amityville case. Um, wait, are you about to talk about Amityville? No. Oh, okay, good. Because that surprise, what I chose. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so this is a good segue then. Perfect. Um, fiction passed off as memoir, true story is certainly nothing new. From William Peter Blatty's book and film, The Exorcist, to James, James Frey's debunked bestseller, A Million Little Pieces. Ugh. Yeah. Filmmakers have a long Yeah, that was terrible. Yeah, that um, wasn't that was Amber was pissed about that one. Like she she just, like put that book on her favorite things and then found out it was a hoax and was pissed. Yeah, that was insane. I remember that and being like, oh I really should read that. And then by the time I like thought about it, it was debunked. But I was like, that was one of those cases where I'm like that's a great story. Why don't you make it fiction and still sell it? Filmmakers have a long history of touting movie tooting. I is it tooting or touting? Touting. Touting. Because <laughs> well, I I got confused for a second because there's the um, drag queens Raja and Raven who toot or boot things, and I was like, maybe they base it off of toot. <laughs> Um, I think everything from the drag queen is all original. Yes. (laughs) Um, Touting movies as being based on true stories when, in fact, they have little or no connection to any real events. Yeah, that's Um, so many horror movies. um, Like The Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Um, As for The Haunting in Connecticut... Garton notes, I suspect the movie will begin with the words based on a true story. Be warned, just about anything that begins with any variation of this phrase is trying a little too hard to convince you of something that probably isn't true. Boom. Damn. And that was the author of the book, um, 
that the movie was based on. So the in the dark or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Boom. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, when I was a kid, I had this VHS, and it was called Fairy Tale Hyphen A True Story. <laughs> and it was about fairies and claimed to be real. <sighs> anyway, all right. So I already revealed it. Um, I, I am talking about the Amityville haunting. We both picked haunted houses. Ooh. And the Amityville Haunting is actually the Warren's most high-profile case. Oh, yeah. That's pretty And it made Time's top ten list of most haunted places. So, uh, I mean, it's just everyone knows something about this. Uh, Whether just because of the movie or the book or whatever, I mean – this is one of the most famous haunted houses, I would say, at least in the U.S. Oh, yeah. I Like, it, everybody knows it. And if you're driving on the Long Island Expressway, you'll pass the exit for Amityville. And I, as a kid visiting relatives, I used to hold my breath because I thought a demon would go inside me. Oh, my God. Okay, so there you have it. Well, because it just was so easy to build a legend around this house because those windows in the attic or whatever it is look like eyes. It's a very creepy looking house. It, Yeah, it it is. But here, I'm about to tell you the, I apologize, kind of long convoluted story of the Amityville haunting. <laughs> All right. So, okay, to do some backstory, on November 13th, 1974, in the small town of, you guessed it, Amityville, in New York, 23-year-old Ronald, in quotations, Butch DeFeo Jr. burst into Harry's bar and screamed that his parents had been shot and killed. Mm-hmm. He kind of runs in and he's like, he actually says, "I help, I think my family has been shot. So, so interesting way to phrase it. Yeah. Interesting also that your first instinct was to run into a bar and tell the patrons that it happened as opposed to say, I don't know, the police. Yeah. That's <laughs> but, serious. But you know what? As we'll learn, Butch had a he had a problem with the all things logical and ethical. So Great. Um, Yeah. <laughs> so I, after other people called the police because, you know, he said there had been a murder, they go to 112 Ocean Avenue, which sounds quaint and lovely, yeah. where they discovered the bodies of six members of the DeFeo family, <laughs> Ronald DeFeo Sr., Louise, and Butch's siblings, 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John Matthew. They were all face down, shot in the back of their heads. They were all laying in their beds, and they were all laying on their stomachs. And the victims all appeared to be shot with a high-powered rifle. And the crime happened around an evil hour, witching hour, 3.15 a.m. is the best estimate. That is an evil hour. Yeah. So, okay. So, what happened there? Well, Butch was 
a problem child. Just his whole life. He was difficult. He, you know, would always, he didn't do well in school. He was really aimless career-wise. He just wanted to party and spend money. Because the parents had a, uh, they sold cars, so they had money. Mm -hmm. Um, But he didn't really want to work or do anything to earn it. So he just wanted to kind of spend his family's money. Which he got to because his parents, instead of doing anything to really fix the behavior, just thought, well, if we just give him everything he wants, he won't be a problem. That works out well every time. Always. Super good plan. Um, So he had weekly stipends. He would get gifts, uh, cars. He even got, he ended up getting a job at the dealership at age 18, but he he barely even showed up to his job. And uh, to be fair, his father was supposed to be a domineering and abusive man, and his mother, as in a lot of these pairings, just kind of, you know, wilted flower faded into the background and then just let the father's overbearing personality take hold and just, he was pretty hard on Butch, but... uh, you know, Butch was kind of was kind of a lot to handle, and he would often threaten his family, lash out physically. You know, at one point he threatened his father with a gun, wow. and somehow they still didn't think there was any reason to try to do something about it. Get some help, maybe. Yeah, no, we'll just uh, we'll just buy him a boat, and uh, he'll stop trying. He'll stop physically attacking his family. They really bought him a boat? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Wow. I feel like I read that somewhere. I would not buy him a boat. You'd buy him a ticket to a rehab facility. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. But that's not what they did, because if they had, then this story would not exist. Uh, So that day in 1974, uh, Butch wasn't at work, which... Is not surprising because he would often just leave because he was bored or just tired, lazy, didn't feel like doing it. So he met with friends at the bar and was calling. He was constantly calling his house in front of everyone, just calling his house, complaining that no one would answer. And they said that the people in the bar said that he was complaining to anyone who would listen about how he keeps calling his house and no one's answering. Well, so then he finally leaves. And then that's when he goes home supposedly discovers the bodies, runs back to the bar, and tells everyone that his family was murdered. I'm getting, I'm feeling a little skeptical here. Yeah, that's a, that's a right feeling, because, uh, things weren't really adding up for, uh, Butch DeFeo. There were no signs of any struggle present on any of the bodies, and there are, like, five or six bodies to go through, six bodies, and, no struggle. There's no evidence that they were drugged. No neighbors heard any any kind of a struggle. They didn't even hear the gunshots. Huh. All they heard was the family dog barking, which, I mean, maybe it heard a car backfire, you know? You never know. But it just, this whole kind of break-in and attack scenario that could be the only way it wasn't Butch's fault just isn't really... There's just no way to make that seem actually feasible. Hmm. It also sounds like a setup. Yeah. So, well, actually, it's funny that you say that because at one point, 
Butch tells police that mob hitman Louis Fellini had killed his, killed his family, made DeFeo watch, and uh, he was he luckily escaped, but his whole family was murdered by a mob hitman. Wow. Which, for a family that runs a car dealership in the small town of Amityville, New York, just feels a little... Really? Were they involved in the mob? I'm not sure that they were. Yeah. I don't know. Although car dealership, unassuming suburb. I'm from New Jersey, so I'm like, well, that's plausible. <laughs> but um, I mean, I guess if I think of Breaking Bad, they had a car wash to launder money. But still, this was just a family with a bunch of kids and, you know, just a happy, well, not happy. But kind of your typical, you know, family. You've got the bossy dad, the kind of quiet, subservient mom, and then the big family. And they lived in a nice house because they, you know, the father owned the dealership. They had a family business. Uh, like, they were rich enough that it was like they were successful, so they should all be happy. But I don't think they were rich enough that mob ties were in question. Hmm. That makes sense. But I mean, who knows? I could be wrong. But there's more evidence that it wasn't actually a mob hitman. The first thing being he had a solid out-of-state alibi. Oh. Uh, so that didn't really fit. Um, also, police began to investigate Butch's story and, you know, what his alibi was being at work. Uh, and then the bar. But... He wasn't at work for that long, and once the bodies and the crime scene were examined, the bot the family had been dead before six a.m. So it doesn't really make sense that he would have he it he wouldn't have been at work that early, so he would have noticed something before. Yeah, and that's when he started throwing out random stories, such as the mob hitman. But they found a gun case for a thirty-five caliber. Marlin rifle. Mm. Sorry if I said that wrong. I don't know guns. And uh, they found it in Butch's room. So finally, after questioning, he admitted that he'd murdered the family by himself, which of course came as a shock to just about no one. <laughs> I was gonna say, they better not have said he like, had some fun hobby, and they were so surprised. <laughs> He makes birdhouses. He can't kill anyone. Yeah. He's our city's champion birdhouse maker. I'm like, that was the key right away. If you're a champion birdhouse maker, you're most likely, a, well, I don't want to speak for for the birders out there, but. Yeah, you're going to get some angry, angry emails now. Upset the bird community. I'm actually obsessed with birds. But I don't dedicate my life to building bird houses. I'm kind of scared of birds. Well, I mean, I like crows just because they're like creepy and weird and ravens. Oh. Um, and I saw a puffin today oh. at the Baltimore Aquarium because I'm in Baltimore. So closer closer to you than normal um, to watch my little sister compete in American Ninja Warrior. But uh, it was so cute. It was like a penguin duck hybrid 
and it just was like swimming around this tank and it we if we like put our finger up to the glass it would like follow our finger and it just kept coming back and it looked like it was trying to like talk to us it was he was a cool little guy so I guess I like him Aww, yeah I don't like um pigeons yeah and those little the birds that steal your food mm-hmm. but other birds and the birds that are in tiny clothes around the holiday mm-hmm. at Target okay those are my favorite Anyway, so yeah, the police anyways. believe that what had happened is he'd committed the crimes because he wanted insurance money, which would have been about $200,000, which might not sound like a lot to kill your whole family, but adjusted for inflation, that would be about $960,000 today, which still not saying that you should kill your family for insurance, but at least that puts into context just how uh, greedy he was. Yeah. They were giving him literally anything he wanted, but he still felt the need to murder them to get the money. (sighs) So, of course, whenever you have people who are just brutal, ruthless, heartless criminals, a lot of times fancy attorneys, which of course he had a good attorney, try to claim insanity. The problem, so, okay, I've heard a lot of podcasts talking about this, and I think it's always good to reiterate Uh, Because we'll throw these words around and everybody does when they're talking about true crime. But there's a big difference between a psychopath and psychotic. Yes. So if someone is psychotic, which is what they would have to be to get, you know, to claim insanity, they're not aware of what they're doing. They had some kind of break in their mind. Like Richard Trenton Chase. He wasn't killing people because he got a kick out of murdering them or because he was you know, because of revenge or because of, there was no forethought. There was no malice of thought. He thought his blood had dried out and he was dying and he needed to kill people to drink their blood so that he could not die from whatever like weird. Oh, he thought, yeah, he thought his blood was turning into powder or something, but like that's psychotic because they don't, they're not calculated and they're not, it's not like a Ted Bundy. And whereas a psychopath is, you know, the they're a danger to others. They they have, you know, more lucid thoughts. They're manipulators, um, kind of like a sociopath. So they're trying to claim that DeFeo was insane. They said that, you know, his because his dad was abusive, that his son, you know, couldn't make decisions because he was insane from all of the trauma, but he, he planned the whole thing. He even tried to, he went to work just to try to set up an alibi. He had this whole thing where he, this whole performative thing at the bar. Like it was not, it was not psychotic. He knew what he was doing. He, he came up with all these, uh, if, if you were in psychosis, you wouldn't have come up with the mob hit story. No. You know, you wouldn't have the the clear forethought to have some other random reason planned. So, so they, oh yeah, they even hired a psychiatrist uh, to say that he was in a state of paranoid psychosis as he moved through the house and shot each of his relatives one by one. But it just, the it was just too perfect. I mean, none of them even got out of their beds, you know, like he, yeah. 
They he knocked him out. He started with his parents, shot them in the back of the head. Everybody was laying on their stomach. No one heard anything. It's just really creepy. Which and that's one of the reasons why people think they're supernatural connected to this case. But the uh, the psychiatrist, the prosecution uh, hired, said that he was definitely mentally ill, but he wasn't in a psychotic state. He knew what he was doing was wrong. So it doesn't fit the legal, legal definition of insane. And the jury sided with the prosecution and he got six concurrent life sentences for the deaths of his siblings and his parents. Dang. There are never, I mean, like I said, though, some people think that the haunting could have even started before the murders. And that's why Butch did it because it doesn't, it, I mean, and, and it doesn't, it really doesn't make sense how one person acting alone could take the lives of six family members in the dead of night. No one heard anything because yeah, it's a big house. They have a lot of land. They have like a little dock and everything, but they, it wasn't like Tennessee, you know, where there's like miles and miles between each house. It was this little suburb in New York. I mean, people weren't that far away. You'd think you'd hear, you know, screaming and terror and gunshots and dog barking. You'd think you'd hear all of that. And I mean, it just, no one moved. They were all in the exact position face down. Like it just, it's, it's odd. It's really strange. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. That Yeah, that does. I was thinking, I was like, no one heard anything and no one was able to like jump out a window or run or. Yeah, no one moved. No one was even out of bed. That You know, it wasn't even like someone got up and kind of tiptoed to the door or hid in the closet and he got them anyway. No, they all were just laying in bed. My theory is he poisoned them first. They they didn't – that's what people have said, but they didn't find anything in any talk screens or anything. Isn't there some kind of poison that like – there's like one kind of poison that like leaves no trace? I'm sure there is. I'm sure it's in the plot of some horror movie. Um, <laughs> But – yeah, that is – yeah, that does creep me out. And it's spooky. Um, and then once he was in prison, he – you know, Butch just kept making up stories, kept changing his story. He told a parole board in 1999 that he had actually only killed his oldest sister, Dawn. He claimed she had killed the rest of the family and he murdered her to stop the killings, of course, at, at that point. I mean, every – so he – murdered her to stop her, but everyone else had already been killed. I don't know. Um, also, they kind of traced the path of when they were murdered, and he shot the two brothers, the two youngest, last. So it doesn't really make sense because Dawn was killed in her room, and the path he followed through the house, she should have already been dead. Yeah. And she, like I said, she didn't even get out of her bed. But he insisted, I loved my family very much. Um, but the parole board did not believe him and he's actually still alive and he is 67 according to the internet and he is in a correctional facility in Fallsburg, New York. Um, but as I said, this is long, so that's not even the actual story. Um, the Amityville murder, it's, it's crazy too because there's this whole haunted house story. But I mean, I think the DeFeo story is fascinating enough. It's creepy. It doesn't fully make sense. You pretty much know what happened, but then there's little pieces that you don't and we just never will know. Um, but it's just a, a background to the one that actually became famous, which is funny because I think this one's so much more interesting, which is why I, you know, 
went in detail and told it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Actually, I didn't know all of those those things. Well, I am glad to teach you about anything macabre. <laughs> um, but so really the the part that plays into the murder or into the story is that those murders were said to be a catalyst for the evil spirits that then haunt 112 Ocean Avenue. Um, like I said, it's it's debated whether they were the cause of the evil spirits or if uh, the DeFeo family were just more victims of the house. Um, but so the, the, the story that made the Warren so famous was it took place. So December 18th, 1975, they actually moved in not that long after the, the murders and uh, Butch was convicted and everything. And they had, uh, it was like a year later. Um, they had no idea. They moved into the house. They got a great deal. It was 80 grand for this like nice Dutch colonial home with all this was the great yard and everything. Um, but they would only be there for 28 days. So if you think about it that way, it's pretty freaking expensive. Yeah. So when they first moved in, they had they they must have been like super religious because they had a Catholic priest come to just, you know, bless the whole family home while they were unpacking. And in the room of the youngest DeFeo boys, so I think I think it was 13 and 9, the ones who were killed last, the priest allegedly like freaked out was sprinkling holy water an unseen voice told him to get out and he you know listened and ran out um and he didn't he apparently didn't tell the family about the voice but he did tell them like do not use this room as a bedroom no one should sleep in here at night don't be in here at night and they listened and so they made it a sewing room oh i just got the chills because that was a thing that someone had in the 70s, I guess. I just got the chills because sewing room sounds so haunted to me. Yeah, well, I mean, well, apparently it was a haunted sewing room. <laughs> so from the first night they moved in, the first night they felt, the family said they felt strange sensations. And within days, the family's personality had drastically changed. People were arguing. George, the, the patriarch, was constantly freezing cold he spent all his time feeding the fire and fight in the fireplace and was never warm he they said there was a change in his grooming habits so i guess that was why ryan uh reynolds has a big old beard in uh that modern american or amityville horror movie Mm -hmm. um so i guess he just wasn't grooming as much and uh the kathy his wife was her health was declining um, apparently their daughter, their youngest daughter, because, you know, in all creepy movies, it's the youngest kid who makes ghost friends. Um, yeah. although she didn't just meet a ghost friend. She, she described her imaginary friend as a red-eyed pig called Jody. <laughs> oh, just wait. Who could transform not only shape, but also size at times being larger than the house. Oh, and the best part about Jody is that uh, the daughter claimed that Jody could not be seen by anyone unless Jody wanted them to. Wow. So, yeah, there's that. Um, they would they would smell foul odors from around the house. 
Uh, black stains would appear randomly on everything from toilets to ceramic fixtures, which also maybe they just weren't cleaning. Um, Kathy was touched by an unseen force. Um, they don't really elaborate on that one. And a, this is one of the weirdest parts. A green gelatin-like substance would appear throughout the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is that called again? Ghostbusters. No, <laughs> like ectoplasm or oh, something. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's Ghostbusters. Ecto- yeah, ectoplasm. Oh, endoplasm. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Um, but apparently that was something that they saw and, and, um, you know, that was a big thing that people would talk about this mysterious green slime. Um, also the sewing room would fill with hundreds of flies, despite it being the dead of winter. George would wake up nightly at 3.15 a.m., which, of course, as we know, coincides with the time that the police believe the DeFeos were murdered. Wow. And also, you know, just the evil time. But, um, so, oh, here's here's a very, the Shining-esque incident that apparently was totally real and not stolen from Stephen King. Um... One night, George woke up to watch his wife transform into a 90-year-old hag. And the next night, she began levitating off of the bed. Mm. So, um, I'm not sure if his wife was just getting older. (laughs) Um, But that seems like a really dramatic way of saying that. The old hag. (laughs) Levitating. Yeah. uh, But, um. Nope, apparently that was just the demon spirits. Um, They couldn't get a priest to come to the house after all this insanity supposedly happened. So the family took matters into their own hands. They took a crucifix and they walked through the house. They didn't have sage, so they clearly didn't do any research on how they were supposed to fix this. Yeah. But... Uh, apparently when they were walking around the house with the crucifix, reciting the Lord's prayer, a chorus of voices. So some together ghosts erupted in response, asking them, will you stop? Oh my God. That's even scarier to me than like a demon yelling, like stop it now. Like (laughs) a chorus of like polite people going (laughs) you stop exercising us thank you I would like literally shit my pants and like have a heart attack on the spot and join them in their ghostly chorus well you know that's basically what happened with the Lutz is they freaked the fuck out um but apparently things only got worse the final night that they stayed in the house there were rappings as loud as marching bands (laughs) emanating throughout the house Furniture would move on its own, and the children were being terrorized, although it does not say how. Huh. A marching band. It had only been... (laughs) Yeah, maybe they just didn't like marching bands. Couldn't they blast from, like, Justin Bieber? That's wild to me. Marching bands. They just... Ghosts out of everything. Where... Did they they enlist other ghosts to make a marching band? Were they just... 
playing sounds to scare them. This is what I wanted. I mean, I, I guess to be fair, if I look at my notes again, it wasn't a ghost marching band. It was rappings on the wall as loud as a marching band. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I want to take back some of that credit from those not so coordinated ghosts. I really wish that was like part of it. <laughs> and that there was a marching band. Unfortunately, it was not. But 28 days later, marching band or not, the family claimed they could not take it anymore. They grabbed just three changes of clothes apiece, those poor, poor people, and they took shelter at Kathy Lutz's mother's home in nearby Babylon, New York, I guess, because it just says Babylon. Oh, yeah. Um, And then 20 days after that, Paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren were called in by a news reporter, actually, but not even the Lutz family themselves. Marvin Scott, a reporter with Channel 5 New York, he had covered the Amityville story and he had, I guess he was, that was his beat because he had worked on a prior investigation with the Warrens. So then reporters, investigators, and parapsychologists were assembled by Ed Warren, but, and also, you know, their, uh, Society for Psychic Research, the New England Society for Psychic Research. Um, so they all came to the home, mm-hmm. and uh, the Lutz family. The Lutz family actually refused to re-enter the home. They were like, "Nope, we're done. We're not going back in there. You can do your investigation, whatever you want. We're going to stay away." Wow. So they were really, really pushing this. Uh, Brutal horror agenda. Um, And Ed was right. He was game. He was on board. He claimed that he was physically pushed to the floor while using some religious provocation. That was a copy paste. (laughs) Um, Lorraine and Lorraine was overwhelmed by the sense of a demonic present presence. And she said she kept seeing psychic impressions of the DeFeo family's bodies laid along the floor. So, and she also apparently had the sense of being physically pushed back. Hmm. Um, and so the research team also captured this infamous image of a spirit that appears to be a little boy peering from the second floor. So it's this kind of far back picture you can see one of the psychic researchers to the right though I think I cropped this picture um but if you zoom in by the banister it looks like there's like a creepy little boy that people of course claim to be the youngest to Feo. and actually I'm going to send you the picture right now so I want you to look at it okay. and react it actually is pretty creepy ah! that's horrifying <laughs> Yeah, it's really creepy. Of course, now some people say that one of the researchers had a young son and he just happened to be, you know, walk out of the room as soon as they took the picture. But of course, the Warrens insist that was not the case. And that just happened to be that happened to show up once they developed the picture that was taken in an otherwise empty house. All right. I don't know what to believe now. Yeah. Well, here's some. Some more background for you, some more poltergeist-level background. Um, Apparently, before the DeFeos, all the way back, the Shinnecock Indians, I'm so sorry if I am not pronouncing that correctly, um, they had an enclosure on this land that was used to house the sick, the mad, and 
those who they put there in that enclosure, kind of like the uh, Kigahara forest in Japan, the suicide forest, Mm -hmm. when they put someone there, they, they were left to die. So kind of brutal, ruthless way to save money. Um, and so the Warrens believed that the suffering there had left the property with a very negative energy and the dark history and the just strong negative vibes on the property were a magnet for demonic spirits and the preternatural. (laughs) Oh, so that, that is what's wild to me because when they talk about dark history and then it goes back, like, you know, poltergeisty, it goes back to, like, Native American, like, burial or, like, tradition. I'm like, wait a minute. What were the European traditions of, like, we have some hanging and some genocide? I'm like, eh, I don't know if that. Yeah, you know, they really get it. They just really kind of get picked on on all areas. I mean, you know colonizers come in steal their land then what tiny land they have left you know if any if any bad white person does something on it it becomes it's because it was native american land so even when you know butch defeo goes mad and shoots his whole family with plenty of signs of abusive behavior beforehand everyone's like oh well it it was because the indians were there you know the indians that are actually native americans yeah you know, you know, you know what was an ancient burial ground? What? Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Probably is buried, like, remains, soil, sediment. Actually, I live right next to a cemetery. Fun fact. Well, because, it, I mean, it's a newer thing to have had, like, you know, churches where you buried bodies. And then, I mean, look, in cities, like, in, you know, Paris and stuff the body is they were burying it in this one tiny area and then it overflowed and now it's they like put it in all the catacombs and shit so it's of course if you're just living on land you're burying people wherever you want yeah absolutely uh when like um I remember reading the American Girl books and when Felicity I was like so freaked out by this when Felicity's grandfather dies they bury him in the front yard like a rock. <laughs> and I was like so shocked and appalled and my mom was like yeah they did that back then like can you imagine like your grandma dies and you just like bury her in the backyard yeah like <laughs> we don't even bury our pets in the yard right I'm like yeah. my mom has like this little fancy box that has my dog Tiffany's ashes in it it's on the mantle <laughs> Tiffany Um, but anyway it wasn't just the native americans they were trying to blame apparently the land was also used by john ketchum a practicing black magician now i don't know if they're saying he practiced black magic or if he was black and then they were just trying to pick another race to blame for white people problems but either way he had a cottage on this land in 1924 and he requested that his remains be buried on the property and they remain there to this day so people believe well people being the warrens believe that his energy being on the land also impacted the defeos and the lutzes yeah that i sorry aubrey just came back home so i said hi and then i like got distracted (laughs) okay focus because i gave you cookies aubrey gave me a cookie (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. My parents are just like, we want to come back to the room. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you have the Warrens, blah, blah, blah. They blame ghosts. They blame all these people who aren't white. Um, so the war- the Lutzes leave. They give the Warrens pick up all their possessions and the deed for the property for the, L- the Lutzes. Because, again, they refused to go back to the house. They were so dedicated to their story. And the home that was once purchased for $80,000 in 1975 in 2010 sold for $950,000. It's on the market Mm. again, though, apparently. Um, But, yeah, there's never been any other reports. And actually, the owners who immediately followed the Lutzes, who kind of got the best deal, uh, they only paid because of all the bad press about the house from the DeFeos and then the Lutzes blowing it out of proportion. They only paid $55,000 for this like Dutch colonial house with a big yard and you know, all that other shit. Yeah. It's a gorgeous house, like a crazy but yeah. gorgeous house. Yeah. Well, and for $55,000, let's just say creepy is gorgeous because I bet that same home in LA would be like 3.5 or something, you know? Oh, absolutely. But so the people who paid 55 grand were Jim and Barbara Cromarty. And they lived in the house for 10 years. They said they'd never seen anything unusual. And in fact, actually, they said the worst thing about living is in the house was all of the all of the paranormal tourists who would show up at all hours of the night to knock on their door because they thought it was haunted. Oh, no, that's where the $55,000 deal comes in. Yeah, that's where you pay for that. That's weird to me than demons. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. People bothering you. Yes, exactly. Um, So one of the reasons so many people were stalking the house is because in 1977, there was an article by Paul Hoffman called Our Dream House Was Haunted. And can you guess which magazine this was in? Our Dream House Was Haunted? Haunted magazine? Good housekeeping. <laughs> yeah. Good freaking housekeeping. So, of course, the Cromarties were pissed. The Lutzes tried to sue them for invading their privacy. Now, this is the same. these are the same people who called in newscasters and the Warrens, but tried to sue Paul Hoffman for writing about their house in good housekeeping. But pretty sure they were only mad because they weren't getting cut of that. Um, But the Warrens made bank on this. They went in there, they helped out for free, looked like they were doing something nice. Then they took the story, hit the lecture circuit, wrote books, consulted on films, sold stories to studios. They were on all different paranormal reality shows. Uh, They had book and movie deals. And then, of course, they had all the satanic paraphernalia from their cases. They filled a museum in their Monroe, Connecticut home. Sadly, it's closed right now because of zoning reasons. They haven't found a new location. Otherwise, I would say we should take a little trip at some point because that's where the famous Annabelle doll which is actually a really cute looking Raggedy Ann doll not that creepy wooden doll from the movies Um, but that doll apparently is still very dangerous and is at the museum Um, but I mean the Lutzes it's not like they didn't make any money Jay Anson published the very famous book The Amityville Horror and that was written with the Lutzes input 
Um, the book hit bestseller list. It was there for 42 weeks. By 1981, it, there were 37 printings. They sold over 6.5 million copies. And of course, the film rights, as we know, there have been many iterations of the Amityville Horror. Like I mentioned, the Ryan. What is his name? Ryan Reynolds? Yeah, Ryan Reynolds. The Ryan Reynolds one where it's it's very weird watching it because he's like completely ripped and he was always walking around in pajama pants and no shirt hacking like chopping wood in the in the backyard like he's some lumberjack so it's like really weird that you're like attracted to the dad um although i guess we're getting to that age where that makes sense <laughs> that does make sense especially for like a young dad yeah but uh there was also i mean there have been so many there's the famous one in the 70s it's probably the best one where there's the red room that you know leads to the devil or hell or whatever um there was one recently with Bella Thorne, which I don't even know if it ever got theatrical release. It kept getting pushed so many times, so obviously not the best one. Um, Did you know she has a, a music career? No, I knew she had a, a makeup line. She had she had a song, and I still I listen to it on Spotify, and she's like, I'm Bella Tharn. Bella, Bella Tharn. <laughs> well, you know what? She probably did sing. On, she was on Disney. I, I don't think you can be on Disney Channel without doing some kind of music. Oh, yeah. I kind of like her. She's, like, kooky, and I feel like she had that L.A. LA she's kind of very, like, Lindsay Lohan, where she's just kind of like, yeah, I was on Disney, but now my nipples, you can see through my shirt and, I, and my hair is different colors and I'm bisexual. Yeah. I, she really like, I think she's more like Miley Cyrus. Yeah. Miley Cyrus. She's like, I have, a, I have, I have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so uh, Ronald DeFeo's attorney, William Weber, was apparently involved in the, you know, make this becoming a huge story. He claims that the everything is a hoax. He claims that the Lutzes initially approached him because there was a lawsuit. So like the Lutzes apparently had been working with uh, DeFeo's attorney. Um, and at one point, the attorney said he would help them write the book, but they would have to give some of the money and the profits to butch and uh george lutz was not a fan of giving a murderer money so they split from him and then he sued them and i believe they settled out of court and that's they they wrote the book with that jay anson guy but um weber claims that they when they initially met up to discuss possibly working together they he said they created this horror story over many bottles of wine he says it is a hoax which I, you know, is easy to believe. But then we have Danny Lutz and Christopher Quaritino, who are the older two Lutz children. And they say they remember events taking place at the house in the 28 short days they stayed there. They said they were, one of them was thrown up a staircase Ooh. by quote unquote malevolent spirits. Um, Danny even starred on a documentary called My Amityville Horror. And apparently he looked very, very upset as he said, I was possessed by a spirit that I could not get rid of on my own. Um, he claimed the disturbances had nothing to do with the DeFeos. He said it was actually George's fault. He said it was actually um, his brother, or er, his father, George's fault because he had summoned 
bad spirits with his dabbling in the occult. What? They said a vain, domineering stepfather. He terrorized his stepchildren. He would beat them with a wooden spoon and apparently also liked Ouija boards. So as another punishment, he like called ghosts on his kids. I don't know. But I think George is pretty much like he like he like wouldn't talk about it later. Like he just was like, yeah, you know, we had a bad time there. <laughs> but, you know, the rest of the family have these big stories. Um so, the you know, you never know. Um, the middle child uh, also blames George for the haunting. And the, their third child, Missy, has never spoken publicly about her experience, which from, you know, I imagine that's not kind of, you know, they say there's no such thing as bad press, but probably don't want that. Like, you don't want those people on your doorstep questioning you about it. So she is like, fuck this, I'm out. And uh, that's the Amityville Horror. Wow. That was, you know, that launched the Warrens into demonology stardom. And, you know, there's much that can be said about the Warrens and did they take advantage of people and, you know, were they full of shit? I don't know. But one thing I will say is at least they brought us The Conjuring, which is one of the better horror movies to come out of the last decade. So at least we have that. We have good stories. We need people who make good stories. How they and they were great storytellers. That's important. Actually, that reminds me of like a lot of the mediums who do not communicate with the dead, or at least most of them don't, and definitely not the TV ones. But their stories and their empathy is what makes people feel better. Oh, exactly. I mean, because I always tell whenever I was working with interns or anything, you know, it's always like, the more specific you are in a story, the more personal you make it, the more relatable it is, because what's happening is even the details are specific to you. When you go into detail, people reading it will feel a certain emotion. And chances are they felt that before. So it'll make them think of their story. Um, So I mean, that's what the Warrens did, you know, they picked on it was it was right around the height of uh satanic panic and they just you know if you think one way used it to help people another way you could say they used it to you know market for themselves and manipulated people to make money but i guess it just depends on who you ask i think it's a little bit of both oh i think that would be true mixed bag a trail you know because i think if if you know having a demonologist comes to your house helps you i'll light sage sometimes you know it doesn't hurt anybody yeah. makes me feel better yeah i would have to say though that i don't think like carrying around a crucifix does much no if you're gonna carry something around at least carry around like holy water that's been blessed you can throw it at people yeah I mean, and and sage and like I think some of the more like natural stuff is probably yeah. better. But what do you think overall? What's your opinion? All hoax or you know I I'm gonna sound really like new age and lame, but for lack of better words, thanks to that cookie, um, I I think that I whether or not I I mean I believe in ghosts to an extent just because I don't want to get spite haunted, but I. <laughs> I, I believe in energies and I feel like a house in which an entire family is brutally murdered is going to have some bad energy. You know, maybe that doesn't turn into green slime coming out of the walls, but you might just not, you might just not feel, 
you know, as comfortable there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Also, like, that people say, like, the most, I'm not sure what I believe. I do, when I hear a sound, I do always say out loud, you are welcome here. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I'm just like, I was talking to someone about that the other day. I'm like, look, it does no one any harm for me to believe enough to not, just in case it's real and just in case they're stronger than we know, to not get haunted by them because I create enough problems on my own. I don't need someone who can never pay, can never face justice for doing it. No, you can't punish a ghost. Yeah. Also, my favorite explanation for ghosts is that they're echoes from the past, like, like time echoes. Okay. I mean, I, I honestly like the idea of spirits just because, you know, having, having lost people which like we all do I just I think I think it's a nice idea that they're somewhere that there's and you know there for me it's not like I've never seen like visions of my grandmother you know my dad's mom or anything but sometimes things will just happen like there'll just be some kind of coincidence or it'll remind you of a of you know a memory like you said like the past and it's just kind of is comforting and you're just kind of like oh well maybe you know we're still connected in some way I think that kind of thing I I, I like to believe yeah I I I like that except I really don't want ghosts around if you know like if like ghosts really need to like not be around when you're masturbating. <laughs> oh my god, that's there's a great episode of Pen Fifteen on Hulu where the one girl gets she like learns about masturbating and gets really into it, and then her mom is talking about her grandfather and is saying how he's always there and he's always watching over us, and she's like even when we're in our beds at night. And then she starts be, like seeing him everywhere and being terrified and feeling so guilty. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I get that. <laughs> you don't want it to be kind. You want it to be just like a general sense of comfort, not voyeurism. Yeah. If I was a ghost, I would make sure to leave people their private time. I'd be like, I remember. Okay, so we need to... Sorry, this was a really heavy conversation, a lot to cover, but unfortunately, as I said, I am in a hotel right now, and I kicked my parents out. We were here to see my sister, and they're kind of pissed because it's, it's getting late, so they want to come back to the room. So let's talk about uh, what we've got the munchies oh, for, because nice. we got to go. I got to go. <laughs> um, same. The munchies for the cookies that my lovely boyfriend, Aubrey, just gave me. Oh. They're the, the Principe sandwich cookies with hazelnut filling oh that's nice yeah um before we started i was eating white cheddar popcorn so i'll probably go back to that nice that's a classic no i'm a popcorn girl it's my aside from soft pretzels it's like my biggest food obsession yeah obviously i'm a super healthy person everyone send kayla those those gift tins with three flavors of popcorn wow that would be nice i love those um, okay, keep flying high. I'm going to say my little sister because she was flying high, throwing herself on all these crazy obstacles at American Ninja Warrior. Hey. I don't understand how a body can work that way. Um, and if you want to watch, hopefully she'll be on TV. I think she said around June 17th the episode will air. Ooh. So. And um, my flying high is Fran Drescher. That's a good one. She's pretty dope. Yeah, she's dope. And I was looking at a um, thread of all of her outfits. 
from oh yeah yeah she i mean the 90s she just slayed yeah and now she's like super like charitable and an activist and just you know best later bud check us out on instagram high crime pod and our website high crime pod.com and our email info at high crime pod.com perfect all right until next time till next time bye